Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of the book club series where we feature a book each month and have a conversation with some of the incredible authors in our network. Enjoy the conversation and you can check out all of the great books and resources on our website www.redletterchristians.org. For folks that are maybe just joining this week, you know, we're, we're of course doing uh, Best Book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and the, the subtitle is great too, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And if you don't know what that, that uh, all that that captures, you're going to get a good feel for it tonight. I know a lot of you have picked up the book and you've read it. If you haven't, you need to. It's a really wonderful book. It's also cool. I think you know, Beth, that we had Kristen Dumay on here. Uh, yes. Know, and, and just like your book, Kristen's, I told, I showed her, I've got my, I've got like my different colors of highlighters. <laughs> and I've got, and when I fold a page over, that means something. When I fold it from the bottom, it means I, I might want to use that in the book I'm writing. So I've got all my little notes in here. All your methods. Books. That's so great. We're going to dive right into it. So you can put your your you know comments and questions in Facebook. But I, first of all, just want to say thank you, Beth, for being here. Yeah. We've got some similar circles of friends that we uh, interact yes. with. And you're, are you in Waco now? You're down at home in Texas? I am. I am. I'm in Waco. I was thinking that we have two different forms of Southern accents going on between you and me. So, you know, we can... <laughs> <laughs> we can cover a lot of the South there. Yeah. And that, and, and I know that for, for some of y'all, every once in a while, my internet will get a little glitchy because I'm in a town of 2000 people, this little bitty town in North Carolina. So um, working with like three different hotspots to try to get the best internet that I can, but it's going to be a great night. And I think, you know, first of all, Beth, just to give a little backdrop, you know, for, your own, I mean, you're a historian, you, you're, you're doing mm-hmm. such great work, but some of this is really personal. And I think yeah. hearing, you tell it so well in the book, but that moment where you really knew you had to confront this, um, but even you know, some of your Southern Baptist upbringing, I think I, 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 all that helps people lean into the conversation, I think. So yeah. tell us a little bit about your, you and how you came to the point of writing this book. Yeah. So Um, It was a choice to put my personal narrative into it. It was actually a hard choice. I remember thinking and talking with my husband if we wanted to do that. And I finally decided that, you know, the evidence is there and it's been there for a long time, but it needs testimony, needs testimony. And, you know, we are testimony people. And I grew up, that was one of the first things I remember learning. You know, you grew up in my church, you learn John 316, and then you learn how to give your testimony. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to put my testimony in um, to interweave it with the evidence. Uh, So I did grow up, you know, my world was the world of Southern Baptist. I married a Southern Baptist pastor 10 days before I started grad school, North Carolina. Um, And then he was at Southeastern during the height of Paige Patterson. And that was really when I began to realize that there was a problem with what I was being taught about what women should be and um, how that wasn't reflective of 
of really Jesus. That was really where my disconnect began to, to be. It took me a long time because, you know, the church is a nice place and people put a nice spin on what it means to be a biblical woman. Um, but it really hit me. I think it was sort of a slow progression for a while, but the moment I talk about the moments that it hit me in um, the book. And one of the moments was when I had come home from a service and I had, I didn't put this part in the book, but we'd also been doing a teaching series with our youth. And we had been training our youth to teach all of them, girls as well as the, the, the boys. And I, we had been watching some of our girls teach. And I remember just thinking, wow, they're gifted. And then mm-hmm. I remember the sermon in church that, you know, was so hardline complementarian that women are only called, you know, to be under the submission of their husbands. And then that coupled with me having just taught through Romans 16 in my classroom at Baylor. And it just hit me like, I was like, this is not what the Bible is teaching. This Mm. is not what the Bible is teaching. Um, But I wasn't ready to do anything. It was really the circumstances of 2016 that hit me in the face, the circumstances, the political circumstances where my friends and family around me um, were buying the lie that we had a presidential candidate who was claiming or people were claiming was representing Christian values and representing Christ. And uh, I mean, it was just bizarre to me. And then that was the same semester too, that, you know, my husband and I decided that we had to that we could no longer be silent about this issue. And we asked for a woman to teach high school Sunday school and the hard no that we got from that coupled with what was going on in the political arena just kind of shattered my world for a while. Um, I still didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to do something. Yeah. And I think for folks outside of this church world of, uh, you know, where we, we do see the discrimination against women, it's hard to Mm -hmm. understand exactly what you mean by um, a woman teaching Sunday school, you know, but in your (laughs) book, you go into like, you go into detail about how women shouldn't even be able to sing in worship services because women are to be silent. Right. And yet, like, there's a lot of contradictions. I mean, you see all this, that women are really historically a big part of international missions as if they can go to other countries because people, you know, I don't know what, (laughs) or, you know, they can teach children's ministry, but there's a point where boys become men and women shouldn't be teaching over men. And that's kind of what happened, right? Unpack it a little bit. That just don't quite know that world. what it is, is that you know, on the one hand, and I talk about this in the book, on the one hand, patriarchy has always been a part of Christian history. So women have always been fighting a different form of this battle. But in the late 20th century, um, there is something that we call in the conservative world, especially in the Baptist world that I live in, the conservative resurgence. And in the late 1970s, a group of very hard line conservative male leaders who believed that, um, who believed essentially they had a very legalistic understanding of the interpretation of the Bible. Um, And I got hit hard last week for inerrancy. So I'm trying to avoid things that will get me hit hard again. But nonetheless, they had a very legalistic understanding of how the Bible was to be interpreted. And part of this was that women should not be in any sort of leadership over men, and that women should be under the authority of their husbands and the male 
leaders in the church for all time. Mm -hmm. um, and this led to a movement that really, they began to take over seminaries. They began to take over seminaries. They began to take over churches. It was a concerted political effort within the churches. And the, the impetus behind it was to get women out of the pulpit. I mean, it's just really crazy when you think about all of this energy that was invested in keeping women from doing what God has called them to do. And uh, it worked It worked really well. It took over seminaries, it took over universities, it took over churches, and along with it came this concerted effort along um, Christian material culture. Kristen Dumay does a great job with this about what women were taught. And they began to be taught that the only way to be a godly woman was to be under the authority of your husband and male leaders in the church. And that if you ever tried to go outside of that, um, that you were that you essentially were on the path to become a heretic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I can talk more about it, but that's the general no, picture we're, we're, of what happened. We're going to circle back to, you know, okay. some of the funk that we're in right now. And um, I think no one's surprised that, you know, red letter Christians, we believe fully in uh, the ordination of women. We believe in women leaders. We believe in women preachers. If I was a little more prepared, Beth, I would have had my shirt on. I've got a shirt that says God <laughs> loves women preachers that yeah. I wore at an, a conference that will go unnamed because they didn't have enough women preaching. But anyway, um, but you yep. know, at the heart of everything for us at RLC is and so, you know, I really love to start there because Jesus, you know, for a lot of us, I think the way that we're thinking of our faith now is that Je Jesus is the center. Jesus is the lens through which we're interpreting history, which we're interpreting the Bible, and even the, the lens through which we're interpreting, you know, the world that we live in. I mean, Jesus is a full revelation of God. And so as you, as you read scripture, you do this so well in your book, you know, you, you kind of point out the contradictions between Jesus and this kind of uh, strange theology of the church. I mean, Jesus, oh. I can't imagine him being much more empowering and, you know, beautiful and his yes. interactions with women. So talk about a few of those, maybe the snapshots that are worth recognizing how radical Jesus's, you know, life and teaching was when it came to women. Oh, yes. Uh, there's several. You know, the thing that really began to catch my attention to how radical Jesus is, is not in my Protestant upbringing, my Southern Baptist upbringing. I mean, I was very grounded in the Bible. Um, you know, I, I could quote you all my scripture verses and I could do all. I was very grounded in the Bible. But it wasn't until I became a medieval historian and I began to read 14th and 15th century sermons that I suddenly began to see the women and Jesus's interaction with them in a new way. Mm -hmm. One of the most popular women discussed in medieval sermons is the woman of Canaan in Matthew 15. Uh, that's the prominent passage that's used. And it's this amazing story where Jesus and his disciples are walking along in a village and this woman, this non, you know, it's a Syrophoenician woman. She comes up behind Jesus and she calls out to him and she says, you know, heal my daughter. And the disciples all say, you know, don't listen to this woman. You know, she's following us. She's, you know, we just got to stop her and make her go away. And Jesus actually stopped and he talks to her. And it's actually a very controversial passage about what Jesus is doing here because he actually uses not so nice language with her. Um, there's a lot of controversy about what he's saying, but I'm going to give you the medieval read on what he's saying. And the medieval read is that essentially that Jesus, he tells this woman, he says, look, 
Why should I give you, um, you know, why should I give you something that is for the children of Israel? It's not for you, you know, non-Jewish dogs, essentially is what he says. And this woman looks at him and says, well, even the dogs get to eat the scraps under the table. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, woman, you are of great faith. Your daughter is healed. Jesus only says what says you are of great faith to women. Have you ever noticed that, Shane? It's only in the New Testament. It's only women that Jesus says that to where he looks at him and says, you are of great faith. And, you know, the medieval twist, the medieval understanding of this is that this woman actually wins this argument with Jesus that and that Jesus was using it as a teaching lesson, you know, sort of like this is the way she was viewed. She was viewed as a dog. But Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, she is worthy. And she, you know, I mean, it's amazing. And it's just, it's like, how can you read that and think that Jesus is not doing something subversive with women? (laughs) I mean, you know, so that's one example. I probably spent too long on it, but that's one of my favorite examples. I mean, that's a a really (laughs) good one. And I think a lot of people miss the whole subversion of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, there's other folks that teach that Jesus um, had a blind spot and this woman was opening his eyes. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that got different takes depending on how yeah. they read scripture. But I've always right. read it just like you do, that Jesus is airing the dirty <laughs> laundry, saying what all these men are thinking. And then the woman triumphs and all the men are mad, I'm sure. You yeah, know that's exactly that? it. I, I like, you know, it also fits with other things Jesus does, like sitting at the well with yeah. the woman. I mean, it fits with what how Jesus treats women. Yeah, so... The second, I want you to tell us about the the whole Junia thing, right? But first, I want to read you this this wonderful passage. Uh, Just just a couple of things to show. Um, You you say, this is page 64 of of, uh, uh, Best Book. You go ahead and read it. You go ahead and read it. Yeah, okay. So this is it. This was when I was teaching my class. And this is what I noticed. This was the disconnect. And so I had my class, my students read out, one of my students read Romans 16 out loud. Um, And I said it was the first time I'd really listened to their names being read. And it's Phoebe, the deacon who carried the letter from Paul and read it aloud to her house church. Prisca, Priscilla, whose name is mentioned before her husband's, something rather notable in the Roman world as a co-worker with Paul. Mary, a hard worker for the gospel in Asia. Junia, prominent among the apostles. Tryphena and Tryphosa, Paul's fellow workers in the Lord the beloved Persis, who also worked hard for the Lord, Rufus's mother, Julia, and Nerus's sister, 10 women recognized by Paul, seven women recognized by their ministry, Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. One woman, Phoebe, is identified as a deacon. Kevin Madigan and Carolyn Osek write that Phoebe, quote, is the only deacon of a first century church whose name we know. Mm. Another woman, Junia, is identified not simply as an apostle, but as one who was prominent among the apostles. Oh, so it's so awesome. I mean, you go you go in other places to show, you know, there's 107 references to women deacons and leaders, all <laughs> yeah. these, things, these women that get erased. But sometimes it's been really strategic how we've um, shaped the narrative. And I want you to Share a little bit about Junia, because you do that so powerfully in your book. Like what happened with that, with this? this Oh, gosh, Junia. You know, it's sort of interesting, too. Junia set off a firestorm again on Twitter last week. Um, I'm not sure if it was just because of me. Some people said, I don't know what's going on. But nonetheless, Junia is a flashpoint 
for the church. And I think one of the wisest things I've ever heard a biblical scholar say was that if Judea's name had been Junius, if it really had been a man, no one would have ever questioned that this person was prominent among the apostles. The only reason a question has ever been raised is because her name is undoubtedly female. And for almost all of church history, from the ancient world all the way up until really the very modern world, I mean, there's a few anomalous things going along, but mostly all the way up, Junia has been translated as a woman. In fact, we know that Junia is a very prominent name from the first century. Um, Junius is not. That's the male name that people have tried to change out. There, there aren't really Juniuses running around. Uh, it just doesn't make sense at all for it to be Junia. I mean, for it not to be a woman. But in the 19th century, and there's a book that I quote in here by a guy named J. Eldon Epp, and he has a really clear image where he walks through all of the translations of the Greek New Testament. Um, and he shows how in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, the name Junia begins to be changed to Junius. The only reason for this change is because they be, they believed that a woman couldn't be an apostle. So they changed her name to a masculine one. And that's that's the only reason. Yeah, it just boggles the mind. And, and it does. And, and uh, you know, as we as you look at it, you think like Mary, you know, is often called the apostle to the apostles. Yes. It's the women who stayed, right? Yeah. And we have the gospel yeah. because of their courage. And they were the first yeah. kind of people to proclaim the resurrection. And, and, you know, but that doesn't always translate into women pastors. So we're going to kind of keep on this little <laughs> journey. But I like starting with you. Yeah thinking about Junia and the early church, even the folks that we see in scripture, the, the women's names that we often miss, because a lot of the dude preachers also don't talk about these women. Right, right. right. So, and then, you know, um, uh, but St. John Chrysostom, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. this in your book. I mean, this is one of the great thinkers of the early church. He really uh, um, celebrates Junia and as a woman, not as a man. <laughs> Yes, he does. He does celebrate her as a woman, you know, and he's not actually totally pro women either. I mean, that's the thing. But he believes God's that God called these women and he's totally for his female deacons and other women in leadership. So, yeah. And so you're coming at this, though, as a historian and, you know, you 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 talk about your classes and all the, his, you know, the work you've done in the medieval period. And yeah. I'm guessing that's like, is that like for some of us that are not historians, is that 500 <laughs> to 1500? Yes, roughly? that's that roughly period? the medieval. Yes, that's great. Yeah. And one thing you say is instead of scripture transforming society, society transformed how early modern Christians interpreted the Bible. And I I would love for you just to throw a few flashpoints of how you see that happening. Cause we all want to believe that, you know, that, that our faith is about transforming the world, but sometimes it's the exact opposite. The world and cultural values transform um, our faith and how we read the Bible. Gosh, you know, that actually is the core reason why I wrote this book is because um, we are arguing that how we treat women is countercultural, but how we treat women is not countercultural. There is nothing, nothing special about what Christians, how Christians treat women. Um, and so one of the things that I really wanted people to understand is how our treatment of women by the church 
changes over time. Now, women are always under the authority of men, but it changes and it changes according to culture. Uh, so in the late medieval world, there is still patriarchy. Women are still disadvantaged. Um, but women, if they, because the reason women were disadvantaged was because their bodies were considered to be flawed and they're considered to be weaker than men, you know, literally, and not able to be able to do the same things as men. Um, and so, but women who forsook their bodies, who became, you know, who were often our sacred virgins, um, who became female monastics, who became female religious, um, and dedicated their lives to serving God and not to, not to family, um, or they left their families later on in life, which is also something that women aren't supposed to do. But we have a lot of women who actually leave their families to do their calling, and they are revered for it in the medieval world. Um, so in the medieval world, women could forsake being a woman and be seen as more godly. Mm. After the Reformation, this changes. And the godliest thing a woman can be is to be a married wife producing children under the authority of her husband. Yeah. Um, and this is a radical change. And a this is a radical change that I think influences the evangelical world more than we realize. Yeah, so. we're going to talk. We're going to get into that cult of domesticity. As you said. I, I, I practice <laughs> yeah. saying that tonight. It's like the hard word to say. But before that, on this Reformation thing, this is yeah. interesting. This is interesting. Y'all, if y'all don't know church history, it's okay. Just keep it in because we're having fun here. And here's the thing is that this, the Reformation, you know, when we, when we get kind of the Protestant movement and, and everything, you, 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 you say this, that, that you would think that Reformation theology would set women free but it didn't. And I want to yeah. tell you a quick story about this. Um, are you still <laughs> hearing me? Okay, Beth, you hear me? Oh okay? yeah. You're great. Um, you're great. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm with a friend who I'm don't, I'm going to do my best not to like identify who is <laughs> a really good friend of mine who um, what, grew up Catholic. And now he's, um, he's uh, not, he's Presbyterian. And he and his <laughs> wife, and my wife went out and we're, we're debating, you know, cause we got these rings that my wife and I had made for our wedding. Actually, one of them's made from my dad's who died. His, his wedding band was melted down. We made these rosary rings. So she sees it and she's like, are y'all Catholic? I'm like, Oh no, there's a little bit more to it. You know, and I explain it. And then she says, um, I said, but we're not not Catholic. I said, I've, I've learned a lot from the Catholic church. And she says, she says, well, the Catholics have been so, you know, sexist. And, you know, she's kind of talking about how the Reformation really uh, kind of, you know, uh, did a lot for women. Yeah. And I'm like, tell me the, tell me the, the really spectacular women leaders of the Reformation, right? <laughs> And, the, you know, but I started saying, like, part of why we know some of the women is because Catholics have, and, and others have celebrated them really well. You know, and I can name all of these great women of faith throughout church history. But, you know, patriarchy has lots of different little um, tentacles and it has a unique form in the Reformation. And as I think you should talk because it didn't yeah. set women free. Say a little bit more about that. Gosh, you know, that's one of the most ironic things, I think, if you really think about the theology of the Reformation, which emphasizes the, the priesthood of all believers. And there's a lot of nuances as a historian, you know, there's a lot of nuances to that and what it really means. But at the same time, you know, it does say that we all have equal access to God. 
And that also that we, you know, God speaks to us and through us, uh, you know, priesthood of all believers. And yet, so that really should, that if you take that theology, it means that women and men are both equally called, um, which I think is true. And so it's really funny how that's not what came out of the Reformation. Um, Now, I do think, and I talk about this in my book, I think there's a lot of women who believed it should set them free and were a little confused (laughs) about why it didn't, you know, about why they couldn't continue, um, you know, preaching and prophesying and teaching um, the way that they thought. And I, and there was some confusion there. Um, And, you know, I think Anne Eskew was pretty confused and Katerina Zell and, you know, so forth. So we have all these women um, who really thought that they could preach and teach because of Reformation theology. But what we find is that instead we get this, we get this emphasis on the Pauline texts that sort of like be that hammer down on women really quickly. And even though medieval people knew the Pauline texts and they did use them, and I can tell you times that they quote them against women, it is not nearly as pervasive as what yeah. happens after the Reformation. Um, it's like the Christian church was like, oh no, we set women free. We've got to figure out another way to keep the status quo. And so Paul suddenly becomes a usable way um, to help. Now, I don't think they were just being completely manipulative. I think they were reading the text that way because their culture told them that women belonged under the authority of men. And the early yeah. modern world is a time in which law codes are becoming more restrictive against women. And so I think it was natural for them to pick up on what and have this more restrictive reading of Paul and use it to keep women in the same place they have always been. And that's under the authority yeah. of men. And I mean, you know, you think of the Reformation, I mean, you immediately think, you know, uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, you know, you're thinking of all these, these men uh, and, and that has a lot of residue that continue, we continue to see today. But you, you, you point this out that in the period, the medieval period before that, you got all kinds of really mm-hmm. incredible women. I mean, I think of like Claire, yes. Assisi, you know, I, yes. I yeah. that, and, and actually she left her biological family and some of her family yes. ended up joining the order. Right. Yeah. There was these women that were so dedicated to Jesus that they were leaving a lot of that family and domesticated life. And yet after the Reformation, that's not really like what made her a celebrated woman of God. And you you talk about it as a cult of domesticity. And yeah, you go through the the piety, purity, submission, and, you know, talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how that began to kind of congeal, right? Yeah. So um, the early, from the early modern to the modern world in in Western Europe, what historians can kind of trace um, is, is a restricted space for women that in many ways that these law codes become more oppressive for women. By the time we get to the 19th century in Europe, in England, for example, where I work, uh, you know, when women get married, all of their property legally becomes their husbands, Um, all of their, you know, literally they can't access their finances. In fact, there's some conversation in churches, if it is okay for a woman to give to the poor without her husband's permission. And if she gives to the poor without her 
husband's permission? Is she stealing from her husband? I mean, that literally is a conversation. I mean, that tells us how restricted some of these laws were against women. Um, and so in this 19th century, we see this emphasis and there's a lot of pieces to it. It happens in America too. It's called the cult of true womanhood. Historians have talked about this and it has parallels with the cult of domesticity. But sort of the idea is, is that to be a godly woman, that you are, that submission is part of, of what it means. A woman is made to obey is one of, you know, the way that it was regarded and that they are completely, you know, they're supposed to be under the authority of their husbands, under the authority of um, their churches, and that they are, their piety is to be reserved for like teaching their children. They're supposed to be cultivated and teaching their children, but not really beyond that. You know, their circles of influence are to be with children and with other women. Um, and so you can certainly see, I mean, it's one of the most surprising things to me. Well, two things. First of all, it's not surprising at all that suffrage is born. <laughs> in this very oppressive atmosphere of the cult of domesticity, um, where women were like, we've got to get that where we can help make the laws because of how restricted the space is against us. Mm. Um, but then the other thing is, it's so surprising to me when we read, I mean, this is one of the things I pull out in the book. I mean, I can't read James Dobson without seeing how much all he really seems to be doing is pulling on this 19th century cult of domesticity and just bringing it all the way up to the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one of the things I say is that biblical womanhood today is just resurrected 19th century cult of domesticity. So, <laughs> yeah, Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Well, I already wrote it in the book, you know, so I can't yeah. like backtrack on it now. <laughs> it's, it's just great. Uh, to, to give people one little handhold, I think, on the way that, that some of this this happens, you, you do such a good job with talking about the, um, the translation of the Bible, right? And yes. particularly, um, you know, I just came out of a week of... <laughs> trying to keep this patriotic Bible from getting printed with the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, the, uh, oh, law, the uh, Declaration of Independence and everything wrapped up in the Bible. And uh, as if they were just, I called it the American uh, Apocrypha, you know, <laughs> yes. add a few of the, the, the things that need to be added to the Bible. So thankfully Zondervan's not printing that, but you, you, um, you uh, kind of talk about that, you know, how, we talk about the inerrancy of the scripture and this is the word of God, but there's a lot of human fingerprints on it, especially yes. on some translations like the King James version. And the, um, but you, you, you know, that, that moment where there was this really scholarly commissioning uh, that led to the, the new international version, the NIV, I think one of the most popular modern versions of the, of the Bible, but there was another group that sort of, it, it almost sounded like reacted to that and created this uh, English uh, standard version. Standard version. Yeah. So like, and you, yes. you do such a great job at showing like, that this is not just about whether you use these two similar words. I mean, there was some like real um, deliberate patriarchal uh, principalities yes. and powers that were involved. There were. Yeah. And I think that's, I think this is in some, I, in some ways I've been really surprised by the reaction to my chapter five, because mostly it is people like, I had no idea. I had no idea that, that, you know, they thought that, 
the the translation process i think is a mystery to a lot of modern I mean, we're just not taught it and we don't know other languages very well and so this whole idea of how we do this i think misses misses us um and so what we see happen and, and again this is something that i came to by my medieval sermons um in the late 90s early 2000s i remember starting to read the reaction to what came out as the today's new international version and it was a version of the NIV that was put out to correct some of the Greek words that were more gender inclusive, but had been mostly translated as men and brothers, etc. And so they began to change some of those where it's, instead of it saying brothers, it said brothers and sisters. Um, and so those were some of the changes that began to be in the TNIV. Well, there was this huge reaction to it. Um, in fact, World Magazine calls it the stealth feminist Bible, you know, that's going to be the downfall of Christianity. And at the time that all this was going on was when I had first started reading medieval sermons. And one of the very first things that struck me was the gender inclusive language, um, the gender inclusive language that was used towards the congregation, but also the translation of scripture. They would translate the Vulgate in gender inclusive ways. And in fact, the very, the second conference paper I ever gave in my life was on this irony between what was the debate with the TNIV and the gender inclusive translation of scripture in medieval sermons. Wow. Um, so when people say you're like, you're taking us back to the middle ages, you're like, no, the middle ages are way ahead <laughs> of where you're at. That's exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, in fact, I mean, it's just, it was bizarre to me because, um, and so it made me follow this debate really carefully. And so I, one of the things that I was so shocking to me about the ESV was how, how clear they were that what they are doing, I mean, most of the ESV, it's 90 to 95% the RSV. So mostly it's the RSV. What they changed mostly had to do with gender. And their goal, they say that they are unapologetically complementarian. I have quotes here because those are their words. Unapologetically complementarian. They wanted to make it very clear that women's submission to men, they believed was gospel truth enough that they wanted to make it beyond a shadow of the doubt within the Bible translation. So people would not question it. And they did a really good job. Yeah. So, wow. so now, you know, that, that was, what, what year was that, that that was happening? That was in like the, the early, this is 2000s. the early two thousands. Yeah. It's the early two yeah. thousands. Um, the, the ESV and the TNIB are really close together when they actually come out. I think 2002. Yeah. yeah. And what you do such a good job at is showing, I mean, you actually kind of point to um, Jamar Tisby, who he was on mm -hmm. one of the first book clubs we did, right? Was he? Jamar's book. I yeah. love Jamar. He actually, yeah. Jamar was a co-signer on that. Uh, don't I saw that Bible too. So we've yeah. been doing a lot of stuff together, but you know, he says racism uh, doesn't go away. It just adapts. And you mm. kind of say, Quote him. quoting him saying patriarchy is yep. very much the same. It, it keeps adapting. It keeps, as you say, shape shifting. Right. And now, I mean, some of what we're seeing with the me too and church too, and the page Patterson, as you mentioned, some folks that are yeah. outside of the church world are looking in. And I wonder if you could say some, something of both what, you know, some of this is not surprising at all, but it is encouraging that, that we're wrestling with some of this. But yes. talk a little bit about how those kind of chickens have come home to roost in some ways, or that we're beginning to surface some of the Gosh. Ugly, ugly fruit of that theology. Yeah. So this is 
this is actually one of the things that I had to tone down some in my book because um, my editors were really good and they said, Beth, we know you want to talk about other things, but you have one message in this book and it's patriarchy. So they wouldn't let me follow the racism trail too much. Um, although I really you wanted don't have to. to tone it down tonight. You can just, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, and this is what's, this is one of the very first things I began to learn as a woman's historian and a woman's historian who never left my faith. I never doubted my faith. Um, but one of the first things I began to see was how interconnected patriarchy was with racism, how much hierarchy. And when you argue, when people are born and begin to be taught that simply because of how they are born, simply because of their skin color, simply because of their sex, simply because of whatever, because of how they are born, that there is something innately about them that makes them able to exercise power over somebody else. Mm. This is a dangerous teaching. We can think about it in the European imperialism, the emphasis that there is something about white people that makes them better than the indigenous folk that they were moving out into, you know, the, the people in Africa, the people in, in the Americas, et cetera. There's something about them that makes them better. And then if you couple this with this understanding that there is something about white men that makes them always, you know, something about them that makes them where they are always the ones who are to be in charge of the women, not only all of the people who aren't white. Well, I mean, this creates an even more dangerous type of circumstance. And in fact, being in youth ministry, my husband and I were in the youth ministry for almost 20 years. And this was something that we saw in, you know, teaching. We saw, you know, these young men who began to imbibe these teachings, that there was something about them that made them able to teach, whereas the young women could not. Mm. And, and so when we teach people that there is something about them innately that makes them better than other people, it leads to people treating other people as less than they are. Um, I found that one of the most oft quoted passages from my book, which I didn't really think about at the time, is when my sort of, um, you know, new take on the usual suspects where I talk about that movie. <laughs> and, you know, I said, I said, um, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing Christians that oppression is godly. And yeah. I think this is and this part of hierarchy, when we say that some people, because of how they are born, have the right to be over other people. Mm. It's dangerous. Wow. I've often thought that, you know, everybody speculates on what this unpardonable sin is. You know, there's this language in scripture, and I've thought maybe that's it, is when we twist the cross into something that's so hurtful and, and you know, twist the entire thing that Jesus lived and died for into something that, that destroys people's dignity and yes and, yeah, humanity. destroys people yeah wow well, if you all have any questions throw them in the facebook or the youtube we got some folks on zoom you can put your questions in the chat we got just a little bit left i told beth i said this is gonna go so fast because i'm so pumped to talk about it all um, <laughs> and um you know, as you, I, I kind of wonder where you see some glimpses of hope, you know, as we see if other folks have questions. Um, um, I, I love that little interaction you talk about with C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers, you know, because I, I do in too. The Catholic, Catholic world a little bit, yeah. too, you know, where the idea is like, no, we believe in women. And in some ways they really do that well, but there's this kind of 
um, the sacramental nature where the priest yeah. is playing the role of Jesus. But you said, you know, uh, you quote Dorothy saying, well, did, did Jesus come to represent humanity or just men, you know? <laughs> right. I know. I, I love Dorothy L. Sayers. I, I really identify with, for those of y'all who don't know, she is an uh, early 20th century um, Christian writer, author, mystery writer. She writes a series of, of mystery books, which are some of my favorite. Um, she also wrote some great, um, you know, Christian thought as well as Christian education. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis, um, lived in Oxford uh, for a time. And she's also a medieval scholar. So that's another reason that I really like her. And so Dorothy L. Sayers, a lot of the manuscripts that I read were also read by Dorothy L. Sayers. And I have a, I, to, I totally see a lot of her theology and her teachings. I mean, I think she was totally influenced by some of these medieval texts, like even her very famous phrase where she says women were first at the cradle and first at the cross. Um, you know, there's, there's a late medieval sermon manuscript that says something very similar to that, you know, that this is yeah. why, this is why women, why, why Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles, because Jesus, women were always there first and they were a faith, their faith is so powerful. Um, and so this is something that I can't help but wonder if she picked up from maybe looking at, maybe gave her a new lens to look at stuff. But she has, you know, C.S. Lewis wanted her to, to join him in um, writing a letter to why Ang the Anglican church should not allow the ordination of women. And Dorothy L. Sayers says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. She's like, I can kind of get your point. I can see how you might want to have, you know, in a play, you might want to have a man representing a man. But she says, but, you know, Jesus isn't just a play. <laughs> Jesus, is he representing just men or is he representing all of humanity? Yeah. Um, and then behind that, too, you know, is this idea in medieval sermons that Jesus came in the body of a man, but he came through the body of a woman. And that is always yeah. emphasized. Yeah. And so anyway, both of humanity is represented in what Jesus and how Jesus came to save us. Ooh, I got chill bumps on that one, Beth. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so this is a question that came in, uh, I think, from Facebook. Um, and I think it's, it's Sarah that asked this to say a little bit more about heresy, because you talk about this and you name uh, yeah. it really specifically that you begin to, uh, you know, really see how this is revealed in the uh, one of the first heresies of the church, the Arianism, the idea that uh, Jesus is subjugate or kind of lesser than yeah. the father. So say about that, talk about that, because you do that at the end of the book. And it's so important that this yeah. is not just stuff, little things to debate. Your denomination is going to disagree with ours, but some of this gets really to the heart of our theology, some of our most important theology going back 2000 years. Yeah. So, you know, part of the problem with complementarianism is that it's hard to continue to argue for it scripturally. Um, once you start putting Paul into context and you realize that he can't be telling all women to be silent because not all women are silent in the New Testament and that Paul supports women as leaders and teachers and preachers. Um, so once you, you can't do that anymore, then it's like, oh, okay, well, then we have to go back to Genesis and we say, oh, the reason women are subordinate is because it was before the fall. This was preordained before the fall. Well, then we even get Russell Moore who comes along and says, there's nothing in Genesis that says that women or men are made over each other, you know, in the beginning, that in the, this is not, you know, clearly patriarchy is part of the fall. 
So then it's like, okay, well, now what do we do? Oh, well, women's roles as being submissive to their husbands is sort of like the way Jesus relates to God the Father, that Jesus is always under the authority of God the Father, and that's why women should always be under the authority of men, except Mm. for the fact that that's heresy. (laughs) Um, It is an old heresy. It's a form of an old heresy. It's had many different versions, but it's Arianism, and it says that that essentially it says that Jesus is of a separate substance than God the Father. And if they have different roles, if they do different things completely, then they're not the same. And salvation only works with a triune God, with a, mm. you know, with a, with a Godhead. Um, and so this is something the church has called out from the very beginning. And it is so telling to me that the, that the, in order to make patriarchy work in the modern church, that they had to resort to pulling up this old heresy because, Mm. you know, I mean, essentially, I mean, I think this was a last ditch effort to say that the reason women are subordinate is because Jesus is subordinate. Mm. Um, But it, it also tells us that how bereft this actually is of Christian theology. So, Mm. you know, I I have a lot of friends who are complementarians, a lot of people I really respect. I think this is a really hard issue. But I'm also not going to go back on it and say that I think it's equal to arguing that women can preach, teach, and lead, because I think scripture supports women as teachers, preachers, and leaders. I think we just misunderstand it. Awesome. So we've got just a few minutes left with this precious hour with uh, Beth Barr. And by the way, just for folks that might be tuning in late, this is her book, uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. So if you haven't picked it up, uh, please do. And we got just a few minutes left. This is a question that came up on the chat, Beth, um, which is, is, is essentially like, Asking for folks that are non-historians, what are mm-hmm. they're wanting homework, Beth? They're wanting homework. Yeah, um, I know. Some other other things that they could read to learn about women in church history. So um, I do, you know, I tried to point people in my book to some of the things that I did think were were readable. Um, that's one of the problems with academics is academic. We write for other academics, and sometimes that means that. Other people don't read what we write because we're not very accessible. Um, so with my book, I was really trying to bring some of this scholarship and make it accessible. Um, I do think of Larissa Tracy, um, who I quote in the book, who has Women of the Guilt Legend. Uh, she is very accessible because mostly she's just telling the stories from this medieval text. And there are snippets about the lives of many of these women. And then she has a very accessible essay where she kind of pulls it all together at the end. So she's a really good one. Um, there's also, you can just go to the Penguin editions, and there are tons of very affordable paperbacks with the voices of medieval women, like Hildegard of Bingen. You can read Hildegard of Bingen, who was you know a very significant female preacher, visionary prophet, um, as well as you know songwriter and um, liturgy writer. I mean, she's amazing. So you can go and read her stuff. You can also read Marjorie Kemp, who I talk about in the book. She's a really colorful character. As much as I like her, I would not want to sit next to her in church. Um, so you can, go, <laughs> that's definitely, you know, Christine de Pizan, again, paperback that you can go read. I mean, she's really powerful, Christine. Um, and you can learn, some of them have prefaces that tell you a little bit about the medieval world. So I would maybe just do that. I would start reading yeah. some of these voices of medieval women, and they're very accessible in cheap penguin paperbacks. Great. And the, the couple of the 
other questions we've had are really interesting because there are people that really love your book and care about you. And they're just, uh, they're aware that you've had some angry <laughs> backlash. And this is a good one. It's just kind of, how, how do you keep yourself grounded in love? And, um, uh, you know, how do you, uh, let's see, how do you put the hate in perspective and retain your confidence and love the people who are trying to tear you down? Those are good questions. So yeah. Those are good questions. Spiritual rhythms looking like, or how do you care for yourself in the midst of it? Yeah. Well, you know, to be honest, um, sometimes it is hard. Um, It's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's not, this isn't a position I ever thought I would be in. And so it's very different from having a student who disagrees with you in class or even academics who are like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing you've ever written. But then they're like, but this is how you can make it better. And we'll move on from there. You know, academics are really great. So this is very different than that world. Um, So sometimes it has been hard that, you know, I've heard, I'll just be real honest about it. There has been some moments where I have lost a little bit of faith, Um, but I've had a lot of people who, have encouraged me. And one of the things that I've never lost faith in is God. I know that none of those hateful comments, none of those, the pushback that I get, um, even from um, prominent Christian leaders who should know better than to say things like that. Um, but even those, I, I know that this isn't representative of God. And Beth Moore said something really powerful this morning on Twitter. Um, she said, you know, this is Jesus. And if we keep our perspective on Jesus and what we are fighting for, then that keeps us sane. And mm. I really identify, and I'm like, that's it. That's it. it's Jesus. I know why. I know why I did this, and I did this because the gospel of Jesus is being distorted. Yeah. Um, I did this because I want my daughter and my son to be able to do whatever God calls them to do, and so that keeps me sane. Is knowing why I did this. It wasn't for me. Um, it wasn't for the people who are angry with me for sure, <laughs> but it was, it was for the church. It was for the gospel and my children. So great. Well, we sure want to support you in every way we can, Beth. And um, if we haven't already, we want to add you on to our, you know, our, the folks that are yes. singing the song of red letter Christianity in the, in our country and keep reading your, you know, so the articles and stuff you put out. So I'm so grateful to connect. I know we've been in a lot of the same circles, but this is, this is really, really a great night. And let's keep looking for ways we can team up. I want to, we're going to come oh, back yeah. in a minute for the benediction, but that's I don't great. Know if you, have, you have any closing words, anything else that we, we, we didn't get to talk about that you want to um, before we, we, I do a few announcements here. Well, I just, you know, the subtitle of my book really gets at what this is, is that this, what has happened with women's roles, it's been tied up in the gospel. And if I do nothing other than convince you that it's not part of the gospel, then that, then that is at least a start. And so that's really, you know, this isn't part of the gospel. Thanks. Great. So we're going to come back to Beth uh, in just a second for a benediction, uh, the benediction she gives in her book. But uh, a couple of things on the horizon, y'all, are um, I just got back. Some of you may have been following us on socials. I just got back from South Carolina um, where they, they're after 10 years without any executions, uh, South Carolina's trying to start up executions again and get this by electric chair and by firing squad. 
so we, we've been mobilizing down there, had a, a powerful few days, but there's a long road ahead of us. Um, South Carolina could start executing people again um, as early as uh, June 18th this month. So we're going to continue to stand with South Carolinians down there and do all that we can to create alternatives to the death penalty. So keep an eye on that. And it's something that's happening a little bit in our, all over our country that there's these kind of really extreme um, ideas of bringing back the death penalty. So in Arizona, they're, they're trying to use the gas chamber, the exact same gas that was used in Auschwitz um, to, to take people's lives. So we're going to see this, right? And this is why it's also a spiritual battle. So keep um, in, in, in tune with, with what we're doing around that. Meanwhile, executions are like the lowest that they've been in a long time. So we're, we're going to get this thing, but keep, keep standing with us and with South Carolina. Um, we're doing morning prayer on the first day of each month. And a lot of you have been joining Jonathan Wilson, Hartgrove and I uh, mm-hmm. on the first day of the month for that. And I'm excited to say that uh, we've got two great friends that are joining us this week, Ched Myers and Elaine Inns. Um, and they also happen to be married, but each in their own right are incredible in their work for restorative justice and creation care. We're going to talk about that in their new book, Healing Haunted Stories. Um, and so you, we're, it, because they're West Coast, we're going a little bit later. So it's 11 o'clock on June 1st, on Tuesday, that will be with Chad and Elaine for live morning prayer. And y'all can always watch the recordings afterwards. So we do that on the first day of each month. Uh, from Common Prayer. We also have been doing a faith forum every month um, on a different kind of hot issue. And because of everything happening in the Middle East, we're going to have a forum on peace in Palestine and Israel. Uh, So we'll have all the information about that soon. We're still landing a date, but that's the conversation we're going to have together this month about uh, Israel and Palestine, and even the the U.S.'s complicity in the violence that's happening over there. So um, keep that in mind. We do all this. We try to do it all for free every chance we get, but we love to give a small gift to Beth and to other people to celebrate their work. So if you have resources and you are able to go to redletterchristians.org and um, give a little donation so we can keep doing stuff like this. And if you don't have money, then just sign up so we can keep you, you know, we, we always say Red Letter Christians is a web of subversive friends. And we're trying to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and the implications it has for justice and the transformation of society. So thanks for joining us tonight. It's been a really great conversation and it's all recorded so you can spread the word. Um, and now back to Beth, uh, I want to just, can, can you still hear me? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So you, you end the book with this, uh, uh, I mean, it's, I would love to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read the last paragraph and then <laughs> send it to you for the benediction you give, but you sure. said, what if, what if we followed the example of Jesus? And that's what we're always asking at RLC. What if Jesus meant the stuff he said? What if we followed Jesus who let Mary of Bethany sit at his feet like a male disciple and who overruled his disciples to make sure he heard the words of that woman of Canaan? What if we realized that even when the male disciples pushed women away, Jesus always listened to women speak? Complementarianism is patriarchy, and patriarchy is about power, and neither have been about Jesus. That's 
how you wind things up and and then you give your benediction you give for your students so you can do that for us we've all been your students tonight so thank you beth y'all jesus set women free a long time ago Mm -hmm. it's time for us to do the same so go and be free go and be free the beth allison bar benediction thank you thanks everybody thanks everyone We hope you've enjoyed this special Red Letter Christians Book Club Conversation. The loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or faithful voices. We know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So thank you for listening to the Red Letter Christians podcast, where we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said.